Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Genesis chapter 7. The title to the study is Get in the Ark. Get in the Ark. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your protection, your provision. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to to gather here and we still have the freedoms in this country to gather. And so um, even if we didn't, Lord, we would obey you and still gather together according to your word, as it tells us in uh, the letter to the Hebrews in chapters 10. And Father God, I thank you for the privilege to break the bread of your word uh, with the people who are here under the sound of my voice. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill me afresh with your spirit and enable me to rightly divide your word of truth and that you would help all of us to just surrender to your spirit and to apply your word to our lives when it's all said and done, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in this study, we're going to see judgment come. And that judgment is going to come in the form of the flood. And so we've seen so far that God had communicated with the man by the name of Noah uh, to make preparations for this flood by building an ark. And this ark is pretty much a floating cargo vessel. And so it's meant to, to float. And to keep um, everyone and everything inside of it safe from this flood. But not only would Noah and his family be saved from judgment, uh, he would also have this opportunity to partner with God in preserving some of the animals on the earth. Uh, But as we get into this study, we're also going to find some apologetic points. And, And when you talk about apologetics. We're talking about defending the faith. We're talking about being prepared to give an answer to everyone, a defense to everyone who asks for a reason of the hope that we have within us. And so we should be able to give people an answer. We should be able to defend Christian doctrine. And so we are going to find some apologetic points in this study. And most of all, we're going to find some life application points, some things that we can take with us and apply those things to our lives. And of course, it's a good thing to know that we're not doing this by our own strength. I wouldn't encourage anybody to do that, but we would apply these truths to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you are a believer, you do have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit living within you, dwelling within you, because the scriptures tell us in the letter to the Romans that if none of us, if we don't have the Spirit of Christ in us, then we're not his. We do not belong to him. So yes, every A Bible-believing Christian, every born-again believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him or her. And so thank God that he's going to help us to apply these points to our lives. But the question is, are we going to surrender? Are we going to surrender? And so we're going to look at Genesis 7, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark. 
you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And so God saw that Noah was righteous. And remember, even in our last study, the last time we met, we talked about this, that this righteousness is it, it's not something that, that's produced by Noah, but this righteousness is by faith. It is an imputed righteousness. He, he trusted God, and uh, this, this righteousness is imputed into his spiritual account. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, it says his faith is accounted for righteousness. And so we're not depending on our own works. We're not trying to be religious or we shouldn't try to be in order to gain our way or to earn our way into heaven or try to earn God's love. But instead... God who justifies or declares righteous or gives a right standing to the ungodly. That's, that's everyone who doesn't have Christ in their lives. So that God who justifies the ungodly, the Bible says that his faith is accounted for righteousness. And this is the one who does not work. His faith is accounted for righteousness. That is, does not work or try to work for salvation, but just trusts in him, believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And that righteousness, of course, is God's righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ being imputed into our accounts. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from, not man, but from God by faith. And so this is the Apostle Paul, uh, of course, given the inspired word by the Holy Spirit, and, and, and he's writing this down. And, and he would rather lose everything and all the accolades and, and all these awards or whatever he may have earned in life, all of these uh, abilities and maybe all these commendations in life. He's willing to put those things aside, the successes that he's had in life, to put those things aside for the knowledge of Christ, just to know Jesus Christ better. That's all he cared about. And we could take a page from his book that, that, that we too should have this type of attitude that we would count everything as uh, rubbish, as trash, as dung, in other words, so that we may gain Christ, so that we may have a closer fellowship, a closer walk with him, and then being found in him through our faith in him to be righteous. In other words, to have a right standing with God, to be justified. We want this righteousness, which is from God by faith. And I believe Noah had that, 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 that God saw that he was righteous because of his faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, attests to this faith that Noah has or had. 
in verses two and three, it says, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. And so as you uh, venture through many Bible versions, you'll, you'll see that they point out that Noah was actually to take seven pairs of each clean animal. So when you see male and female and, and you see that he was supposed to take um, seven of them of these clean animals, okay, put two and two together, okay, seven pairs. And that's uh, why I believe these different Bible versions, plenty of them say that these would be seven pairs of clean animals. And in regard to the unclean, he would only take two of them, a male and the corresponding female. And of course, having the male and female of each animal of each kind, that would ensure the survival of the species after the flood. Uh, But the question remains, how did Noah know the difference between the clean and the unclean animals? Because when we look in the scriptures, as we continue to read the Bible in the Old Testament, we see that Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, um, that God through Moses would show the Israelites how to know the difference between clean and unclean animals. Because remember, they they were supposed to be different from any other nation on the earth. They were supposed to be light. They were supposed to stand out. So their diet couldn't be like anybody else's. They weren't even supposed to, of course, most importantly, worship any other God. They were supposed to be standing out. And so in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, God showed them how to know the difference between clean and the unclean animal. And of course, God will show them this through his servant Moses. And of course, the scriptures are clear that they were not supposed to eat the unclean animals. Uh, But fast forward to Acts chapter 10. Uh, verses 9 through 15 as a reference. Here you have uh, the apostle Peter and he has this vision and this sheet is let down and has all kind of animals on it. And so the Lord tells him to kill and eat and he doesn't want to. He, he's not going to eat anything unclean or common. But, but the Lord tells him to, to not call anything unclean or, or, or common those things that he has cleansed. And so that, of course, was a secondary message from the vision. But, of course, the primary message of that vision, just to give context in Acts chapter 10, is that God was talking about, of course, Gentiles. Uh, but, the, but the secondary message is that God had cleansed uh, all this food. And, and so we look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and it says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified or set apart by the word of God and prayer. So if you want to eat shrimp, pray over it, eat the shrimp. But if your health tells you that you are not to eat that because of too much cholesterol or whatever the case may be, then it may not be wise for you to eat that shrimp. Just pass it over to me, and I will eat it for you. (laughs) A fried, I prefer. I probably I shouldn't have fried though, but just saying. Uh, but if Leviticus and Deuteronomy were written after Noah's time, th- how would 
Noah have known the difference between the unclean and the clean animals. Well, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 20, uh, the Bible says, and this is God speaking to Noah. He says, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. They will come to you. So in other words, if they came in seven pairs, then Noah would infer, okay, these are the clean ones. But if they did not come in seven pairs, but only one pair of that kind of animal came, then then he would infer, okay, that's clean. And so it's just, you know, as simple as that. But why the reason for more clean animals? Why seven pairs of them? See, some, some think this is probably for food. And Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, verse 3, does say that they're allowed to eat meat. And so prior to the flood, animals and humans were, they just ate all vegetables, but after the flood, humans were able to, to eat meat, according to Genesis 9.3. So that could uh, potentially be a reason. But then also, and this is clear as well, this is more, even more clear that some of the clean animals will be used for sacrifice, according to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. And so here, as these seven pairs of clean animals will come aboard the ark, here we are seeing the preparations for worship. We are seeing the preparations for worship. And so I need to ask the question, what can we do to prepare for corporate worship? Because I believe when it comes to worship or honoring God, anything that we do for the Lord is worship. Of course, if it's done with a pure attitude, our giving is worship. Our obedience to the word of God is worship. Our lifting up of holy hands is worship. When we open up our mouths and sing and give praises to God and give thanksgiving or give thanks to God, that is worship. When we do the work of the ministry, I believe that's worship. But I'm talking about corporate worship because here we saw that that Noah was he was getting things ready. These preparations for worship as these clean animals will be sacrificed. Of course, not all of them because they would need to reproduce. But one thing we can do to prepare for corporate worship is individually and, and even uh, with our spouse, if you're married, and, and even add the family to it if you have children. You spend time in the word of God. You can spend time in prayer. You can spend time meditating upon the word of God, just chewing on the word of God so that when you come to church and, and it's time to worship corporately, that means with other believers, whether it's on a Wednesday or Sunday morning or a Saturday, we have a men's study, for example, in Sanctuary of Widows, for example, they're, they're meeting on Saturday. You'll be ready. Your heart will be in tune with the Lord. And as you come together, oh, what a powerful time of worship that could be. And so as Noah was making these preparations for worship, we too should do the same. So in other words, when we come to church, that should not be the first time that we open our Bibles in that week or in that month. That should not be the first time that, that, that we hear or sing along with worship music. That should not be the first time that we pray when we gather corporately. 
That's something that we should do at home. And then when we gather corporately, men study, women study. That should really be like a, a, a icing on the cake or a cherry on top of your Sunday. In verse 4, it says, For after seven more days, this is God speaking, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And 40, of course, being the number of testing and judgment. And he says, I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And so we see that God is in control of nature. Why do I say that? I say that because in verse four, God says that he will cause it to rain on the earth. 40 days and 40 nights. He even gave a specific time. God is in control of nature. And we did study earlier this year about Jesus showing that he is uh, fully God and fully man. In other words, you have this one person, but two natures within one person, human nature and a divine nature. And, And so as we went through that study about Jesus, this series about Jesus, we saw that Jesus also has uh, the power over nature, which means that, of course, he is God. That is no secret to those of us in this room and some of you who are listening that Jesus is God. You see, for example, there was this great windstorm that arose while Jesus and his disciples, that is, his followers, were in a boat. And these waves, they began beating into the boat. But Jesus, of course, was relaxed and he was tired according to his humanity. Remember, he has a human nature as well. And so he was sleeping at the back of the boat. And so the disciples, they became afraid and, and, they, and they thought that Jesus didn't care. And they, they're just going out of their minds. And so in Mark chapter 4, verses uh, 38 through 39, and then skip ahead to verse 41, says, but he was in the stern, that is in the back of the, uh, of the boat. He was asleep on the pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, that we are about to die in this windstorm? We're about to drown. There's water that, that's being, um, you know, splashed into the boat. We're going to sink. And then he arose. Jesus arose. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Skip into verse 41, and they feared exceedingly, and they said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, just like God the Father, Jesus is able to control nature. Why? Because we have one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Jesus will be the second person of the Trinity. So our God is three in one. We're not worshiping three gods. It's three in one. And so if you're looking at the God we serve as a math problem, it would not be one plus one plus one. It would be one times one times one, and you would still come up with one. We serve one God, three in one. But if God can control, and he can If he can control nature across an entire planet like we're seeing here in this study and like we know in our minds and like we're seeing here or we've seen in Mark chapter four. I have to ask the question, is it is it too hard for him to control the circumstances in your life? If he's able to control all this nature. What what is too hard for God to control Nothing. Of course, that's a rhetorical question. There's nothing too hard for our God. And in Genesis 
uh, 7, uh, looking at verses 5 and 6, it says, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. And so these flood waters, of course, they covered all the land. And so not only did Noah build the ark, not only did Noah preach. Yes, the Bible said he preached. Second Peter 2, 5. He's called a preacher of righteousness. Not only did he gather food for him, his family, and the animals that went aboard with him or would go aboard with him. But he was also obedient to the fact that he went into the ark. He went into the ark with, with his family and the animal. Everything God wanted him to do, he did it. And there is a few things that we can learn about obedience to God, obedience to the Lord. And, and one thing we can learn about obedience to the Lord is that, number one, it results in protection and it results in blessings. So obedience to the Lord results in protection and blessings, as we see here in our study. Uh, number two, something else we can learn about obedience to the Lord is that we are acting Christ-like when we obey. Because Jesus says that I'll always do those things that please my Father. And so we are acting like Jesus. If we're Christians, we should be following after him, mimicking Jesus, of course, as I mentioned earlier, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a third thing about obedience is that it's a sign of our love for God. I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus says, if you love me, then you keep my commandments. And so that's the third thing about obedience. A uh, fourth thing about obedience is that it is a sign of humility, a sign of being humble. And the fifth thing I want to share with you about obedience is that it is a sign of faith. It's a sign of faith. The Bible says that just as the body without the spirit is dead, it tells us in James, then faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that you have to have faith and plus works and then you'll be saved. No, all James is saying is that if it's true faith, then the works are going to follow. And that's what Noah had. He had true faith. How do, how do I know that? Because his works followed. He obeyed God. He trusted God that this flood was going to come upon the earth in judgment. And so guess what? He obeyed God in building that ark. And so his faith resulted in obedience. Faith without works, of course, the Bible tells us is dead. But one thing I need to tackle here, and it's one of the elephants in the room, because I did tell you at the beginning that we're going to learn some apologetic points as well, uh, because of course, some people point out, and they're correct in pointing it out because it's true, that there are other flood stories. And so there are other stories about a worldwide flood. Uh, but according to Dr. Dwayne Gish in his popular book, Dinosaurs by Design, to be more exact, and I haven't counted this myself, but according to him, he says there are more than 270 such stories, most of which share a common theme and similar characters. You can find that article on Answers in Genesis website. But examples of flood stories would include one from Hawaii, one from China, the Greeks, the Hindus, etc. 
And then you have this one that is more well-known, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is another example of a flood story. And this Epic of Gilgamesh was discovered in the ruins of the great library at Nineveh. And it's contained on 12 large tablets dating to around 650 B.C., But when you read these other stories and compare it to the biblical account, you see the similarities, but you also see that there are many differences. And so that's not something to be alarmed by, because all that proves is that this story of the worldwide flood is a fact. That's all it shows that it's a fact. And some get it wrong, but I believe the scriptures, the Bible gets the story more accurately and we have that. The Bible's the only accurate account. And, and there are some reasons why this is so. And so in this situation here or in this, at this point in the study, I'm going to um, read a quote from Geisler and Brooks from their book entitled When Skeptics Ask. And so once again, we're looking at why the Bible is the only accurate account of the flood. But remember, just because there's other flood accounts doesn't mean the Bible is wrong. That just means that the flood account is real, that something really happened. That's all that means. But once again, I'm going to read this for you, read this excerpt so you can see some points of why we can trust the biblical account as the only true and and, and the most accurate account. They say here that the other versions of the flood contain elaborations that display corruption Only in Genesis is the year of the flood given, as well as dates for the whole chronology relative to Noah's life. In fact, Genesis reads almost like a diary or a ship's log of the events. So in other words, in Genesis, you don't see any signs of of a myth. In other words, it reads more like a log, like something factual because it is. But the cubicle Babylonian ship According to their story, it was more of a cube. It could not have saved anyone from the flood because theirs was a cube because the raging waters would be constantly turning it over on every side. However, the biblical ark is rectangular, long, wide and low so that it will ride well or ride rough seas well. It says here that also the length of the rainfall in the pagan accounts, which is seven days, It's not enough time for the devastation they describe. The Bible talks about 40 days, 40 nights and rain and so forth. And so the idea that all the flood waters subsided in one day is equally absurd, they say. In the other accounts, the hero is granted immortality and exalted. While in the Bible, we see that the Bible is honest about Noah's sin. And so there you have the marks of authenticity because because most myths, they're going to make their heroes just perfect and and so forth. But here the Bible tells the truth about Noah. Yes, he was his man of faith. He was obedient and so forth. But later on, as you keep reading, you see that he sinned. Got drunk. The Bible includes embarrassing details about its quote unquote heroes. And so those are some examples, and you can research more of them. But the, the, the fact that there's other so-called accounts, they, it shouldn't alarm you. It just uh, should trigger something in you that say, okay, this worldwide flood really happened, and these other cultures or whatever, they're trying to find a way to explain it. But this, the Bible, is the only accurate account. In verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9, back in Genesis 7, 
It says, so Noah with his sons, his wife and his son's wives, eight people went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals, of the animals that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps or crawls on the earth or ground. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And so here, not only is God in control of nature, but he's in control of the animal kingdom. We see this in other parts of the scriptures. For example, only God could make a donkey talk. And so that may seem amazing to many of you. And it's yes, it's amazing to me. But the other amazing part is that Balaam talked back to the donkey. And so that's the crazy part to me. But then here, another example of God having control over the animal kingdom is that he would prepare this great fish to swallow Jonah, uh, this prophet who wanted to run away from him and run away from his calling. But God prepared a great fish to uh, swallow him. And that fish did right on time. He also instructed that great fish to spit or vomit out Jonah. And so we see God with this ability to control the animal kingdom as well as nature, control the the weather. And, And so it's not impossible that God would somehow lead the number of animals he wanted into the ark. That's not impossible that he would lead them to go into the ark two by two, seven pairs of the clean animals and, and one pair of the unclean. In fact, when you talk about something being impossible, that is not something that should be in the same sentence as God. The only thing that is impossible for God are those things that are against his nature. And something that, are, that is against the nature of God is lying. It is impossible, the scripture tells us, for God to lie. But that's against his nature. But if it's within his nature, there is nothing that is impossible for him. So if there's some healing that's needed, that's that's not impossible for God. If there's a financial situation that needs to be taken care of, that is not impossible for God. If there's some wayward family members that, or people that you really care about, you'd like to see them saved, that, that's not impossible for God to chip away at the hardness of their hearts and draw them to his son, Jesus. And that's nothing that's impossible for him, for the person who's rich and they worship their money. For man, it would be impossible to try to save that person. But for God, it's not impossible for him to save somebody who would worship money. There is nothing that is within his nature that is impossible for God. Verse 10, Genesis 7, and it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And so this 120 years of God giving people a chance to repent while Noah was preaching and building the ark. That time is now up. Those 120 years are now up. And I get the 120 years from Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, by the way, if you want to look at that. But Noah and his family and the animals at this point, they've been in the ark for seven days. But now judgment is here. You see, God's timing is specific. He warned man back in Genesis 6, 3. 
that my spirit shall not strive with man forever. For indeed he is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So, so he gave him the amount of years. And then he gave Noah, of course, the amount of days that the waters of the flood would be on the earth. And so we see that earlier on in uh, Genesis chapter 7. So God's timing is specific. And in this case particular, we're, we're talking about uh, judgment. So in this case, in his case, Noah knew, yes, when the judgment of the flood was coming. Uh, but for us, we may not know exactly. That means having a specific date on the calendar of when the seven-year tribulation period is going to come. And that is going to be, of course, a time of God's judgment. He's going to be pouring his wrath upon the earth. You're going to see the seven scroll judgments and uh, you're going to see the seven trumpet judgments all in the first half of the tribulation period. And in the second half of the tribulation period, that last three and a half years, you're going to see the seven bowl judgments. And these judgments, they're going to become more and more intense as that seven year period goes on. And so we don't know exactly when that seven-year period is going to come as far as having a date. But God does. God knows. He has a specific time in mind, just like he had a specific time in mind when it came to this judgment via the flood in Noah's time. And so, no, we may not know the time of this tribulation period. We may not know the time of the rapture, which I believe takes place before the tribulation period where Jesus comes and snatches the believers, the church off this earth to meet him in the air. And so we'll ever be with the Lord. And when the rapture takes place, by the way, that's going to end the church age. Then during that tribulation period, he turned his attention back to the Jews But all we need to do, even though we don't know specific timings, we don't have a date on the calendar. All we need to do is just be ready. Be ready by trusting in Christ for salvation. And if you haven't done that, then I would encourage you to repent. Place your trust in him. Verses 11 and 12. Genesis 7, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. So in other words, one translation says, or one version says, all the sources of the vast watery depths, they burst open. And the windows of heaven were open. In verse 12, and the rain was on the earth. It continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights, which would take it to the 27th day of that third month. And so we see the sources of the flood here. We see, first of all, that the underground reservoirs were broken up. So these sources, of course, are deep within the earth's crust. They were broken up. And so most likely it causes changes in the earth. Things shifted and maybe even gotten destroyed. Then the second source of the flood would be, of course, water from the sky. Because remember, back in Genesis 1, the waters were divided. You had this expanse. You have the water on the earth and then you have the expanse or the sky and then the water, this water vapor canopy around the earth. And so it was in vapor form, of course, above the firmament, above the sky. And so for the first time ever, it rained. That that vapor canopy just let loose when God was ready for it. And so you see rain for the first time and it's just pouring. 
In verse 13, on that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, they entered the ark. They and every beast, every wild animal after his kind, and all cattle or livestock after their kind, every creeping or crawling thing that creeps or crawls on the earth after his kind, and every bird after his kind, every bird of every sort. And it says in verse 15, And he went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life, land, animal, people. Verse 16, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, they went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And so how could all these animals fit in the ark? Some would wonder. Well, first of all, some of these animals, many of these animals, including dinosaurs, yes, dinosaurs, they would have been, they would have been smaller or younger and not fully grown. So I'm going to take a fully grown dinosaur in there but they would have been babies or less mature, so to speak. So that's one reason how they would be able to fit. And then a second reason, and this is according to Dr. Henry Morris and Dr. Whitcomb, uh, what they did was determine that the maximum number of animals that Noah would have had to take with him on the ark was about 35,000. So Noah would only have to take one species of each kind of animal on the ark with him. For example, he wouldn't have to take every species of dog, just, just, one, just one species of that animal. And so that's the second reason how, how all these animals could fit. But then we have to remember, and this goes back to the previous lesson, that the ark has had three levels. And if you use a cubit of 18 inches, that means that the ark was 450 feet long. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. But if you use a cubit of 20.4 inches, like Answers in Genesis does, then the ark would have been 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. And and so by way of comparison, just so you can picture this in your mind, uh, the, the ark, as far as length is concerned, would be nearly as long as one and a half football fields plus three stories. And so that plus the previous two points would, would be reasons of how these, all these animals would be able to fit into the ark. And so in verses 17 through 22, as we move on in Genesis 7, it says, Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose above or high above the earth. The waters prevailed. They surged and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. So if a cubit is 18 inches, it would have been about 22 and a half feet above the mountains, the highest mountain. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle. And beasts. So the domestic animals, the wild animals, and every crawling or swarming animal, they would have, they, they died. And every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So I know, you know, in, in children's books and paintings on their walls in their bedrooms, we make we, we make the flood look pretty and nice and sunshiny. But it was a time of judgment. 
And this flood, by the way, was a universal flood. It covered the whole earth. It wasn't just local. How do we know? Well, the language of Scripture tells us that it was a worldwide flood, not a local flood. For example, you had this type of language that says the, the, the ark rose high above the earth or the waters greatly increased on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heavens were, were covered and the waters prevailed above the mountains, 22 and a half feet, all flesh died and so forth, all in who, whose nostrils. So you see t- words like every and all. So that's a clue. There's words in scripture that this was a worldwide flood. But then also the fossils, because there's lots of fossils and the fossils record would show that an event like this worldwide flood happened, not a local flood, just in a city or small um, community or whatever. And so you see these these fossils, which would be the results of rapid uh, burials of, of, of a bunch of living things. And there's billions of them. You see, the only way to get a fossil is if it was rapidly buried. It had to be buried quickly because if not, then it would decay or scavengers would get a hold of it and eat it up. So they had to be rapidly buried and only a worldwide flood would be able to, to do something like this. And not only that, speaking of the fossil record, and we're looking still at reason number two, of why we know this is a worldwide flood. But speaking of the fossil record, you even see marine water fossils, you know, animals that live in the water. You see their fossils that are found at the highest elevations of mountains, like shells and skeletons of fish and so forth. Evidence of a worldwide flood. But then also already mentioned there's been over 200 written accounts found to date of the writings of ancient civilizations of a worldwide flood. So that would be another reason of how we know this is a global flood. And by the way, nearly all of those accounts also mention a family taking refuge in the boat with many animals that survived the flood. But then get this, Peter also in the New Testament, he makes a reference to the flood. In order to bring up, oh, guess what? Uh, He brought up a worldwide judgment, but a judgment that will come by fire. And so why would Peter talk about a worldwide flood or I'm sorry, a worldwide judgment? If he didn't believe that the flood. Was global. But he used the flood as a reference point to say that the next time the world will be destroyed, it will be by fire. Also, if it were a local flood, if it were just a small part of the earth that, that was flooded, then why, did, then why didn't God just tell Noah to leave the area? Just go over there, just go to the next city. Not only that, but Genesis 8, 9 says that the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And I know it sounds tedious, but we have to go through this because people bring up these questions and we need to be prepared to answer But then get this, if it were only a local flood, then God would have lied in that covenant that he gave in Genesis 9, 15, because God made a covenant with Noah and every living creature to never again use water to flood the earth. But we know there's been many local floods. So that means God would have lied. 
And we know that it's impossible for him to lie. So that will be another, another reason of how we know that this is not, was not a local flood. And so those are just a few reasons to share with people who may have those questions. And some of those questions are honest. And that's fine. But don't get into uh, this thing where people, they just want to be argumentative. Because now you get into the point where they're just throwing out questions to you just to be silly, just to mock God and to mock Christianity, but they don't want to hear any serious answers. And so it, it may be beneficial to you to ask them, well, if I give you the answer, would you change your mind or would you be a Christian? And if they're not interested, then move on. That means you'll be casting your pearl before swine if you were to stay there and waste your time with somebody who is willingly closed off to the gospel. There's other people who would be ripe apples, ready to receive Jesus. In verses 23 and 24, it says, So he destroyed all living things which are on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And so it rained nonstop for 40 days. And these 150 days, they just speak of how long the flood waters prevailed on the earth. But, but there's something interesting here about Noah and this flood that I want to share with you before we move on to the next point or end the study. Because if you remember back in Genesis uh, chapter 5, we talked about Enoch, how he walked with the Lord. Then all of a sudden he was not for the Lord took him. And we found out in the New Testament that, that, that he was taken and he didn't die. And so I mentioned that Enoch is a type of the church that was being raptured prior to the judgment of the flood. And so Enoch will be a, a picture of the church, a type of the church going up in the rapture. And so Enoch, if he's a type of the church being raptured prior to judgment, then Noah will be a type of the Jews because he was there during that so-called tribulation through that judgment. However, he was, and I'll use this term, he was sealed just like the 144,000 Jews will be sealed and protected during the seven year tribulation period. And so Enoch, type of the church, picture of the rapture, Noah, a type of the Jews going through the tribulation period, but sealed and protected by the seal of God. And so the the Old Testament is so awesome. You see all these types and figures that the Lord shows us. But what's even more amazing as we get ready to show the final points here is that when we study the flood, we see a picture of salvation. See, first of all, we see that God told Noah to come. Notice he told him to come, not go into the ark. And so God invited Noah. And so it implied that God was already there and he's, he's inviting him. Look, come under my wing, come under my refuge, find refuge here. And so we see that this salvation is initiated by the Lord. 
And the Lord is still inviting all of mankind to spend eternity with them. Whosoever will come. But then we see in this study that Noah and his family, they had, guess what? They had to use their free will to get into the ark. And in the same way, we must use our free will to receive salvation, to receive protection, if you will, from wrath. So, yes, of course, the scriptures do teach that God chooses. But we also see that God also gives us the responsibility to respond on our end as well. And we respond, we are to respond in faith. But another thing that we see, and we saw this in chapter six, is that Noah found grace in the sight of God. And so salvation involves grace, God's and unmerited favor. But we too, we too have access to God's grace and we have access to it by faith. We were saved by grace through faith, the scriptures tell us. You can reference Romans chapter five, verse two. So we're learning some nuggets here about salvation. We see this picture of salvation as we study this flood. But something also cool in this study is when when you look at the construction of the ark, notice that the ark only has one door. But then the scriptures tell us as Jesus is speaking, Jesus tell us that he himself is the only door to salvation. He himself is the only door to heaven. And John chapter 10, verse 7, he said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So just as the literal ark had one door, Jesus is the door, the door to heaven, the door to safety, if you will. And then after Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark, Notice this in verse 16 of Genesis 7. Notice who shut them in. The Lord shut them in. And this speaks to me in regard to salvation. This speaks to the security of our salvation. In other words, the true believer cannot lose his or her salvation. This is what I would call eternal security. You are secure for eternity. Jesus says in John chapter 10. Verse 28, and I give them, speaking of his sheep, eternal life. Notice that he gives his sheep, true believers, eternal life, and they shall never perish. They shall never be destroyed. They shall never be devoted or given over to misery and hell. In other words, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And so if he gives his sheep, the true believers, eternal life, if you can lose eternal life, then you would have to change the definition of eternal. It's not eternal. If you're a true believer, you have eternal life right now. And then notice this, that after the Lord shut them in, what it also implies is that not only are the people inside safe, but it implies that those who are outside of the ark are not safe. That means that there is a time when the opportunity for salvation will be closed as the worship team takes the stage. You see, Isaiah 55, 6 says to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, in the days of Noah before the flood, people were eating and drinking, Jesus tells us. They were marrying. They were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And he says, so also will the coming of the son of man be. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks those words. 
So in other words, some people are going to miss the opportunity of salvation. They're going to face judgment because they're going to be going about life as usual. Instead of repenting and putting their trust in Jesus. But then. Final point about salvation. Is this ark. This ark being a safety from wrath is a type of Christ. You see, being in Jesus is the only way to be protected from wrath. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in other words, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who, if if you will, for those of us who are in the ark, which is a picture of Christ, there is relief. Why is there relief for us who are in Christ? Why is there relief for us who are already in the ark? It's relief for us because there is no condemnation for us. That means we're not guilty. We're not sentenced to death. Why? Because we are in Christ. We are in the one who died on our behalf. We are inside of the one who took the wrath upon himself. He took the flood, if you will, upon himself. Just like the ark took the beating of the water while Noah and his family were inside of it. If we are in Christ, then we will not take the beating of the wrath that comes from God. We won't face the penalty of sin because we are in the ark. We are in Jesus Christ. And so rejoice that there is no condemnation for you. Praise the Lord because there's no condemnation for you. You are no longer guilty. Jesus took that upon himself. He took that shame upon himself. He took the punishment we deserve upon himself and we are in him. We are safe. And so it doesn't matter who brings up your sinful past. It could be you. It could be the devil. But all you need to be remembered is the word of God that there is no condemnation for you because you are in the ark. And so if you are not in the ark today, my suggestion to you, my command to you is to get in the ark. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you are to us. Thank you for our ark, Jesus Christ. He took that beating. He took the beating of that flood of your wrath upon himself. And we are inside of him. We are in him by faith. And praise you, my God. Praise you, my king, that that we are children of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. And so tonight, Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That, Lord, you would just equip us, use us this week, all for your glory. Remind us, Lord, when that condemnation from the enemy comes upon us, remind us that there is no condemnation for us who are in Jesus, our ark. So, Father, as we all stand, as we all stand in your presence, I pray, Father, that you would just bless every single person, protect each and every one of us as we head home, Lord. Give us traveling grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.